Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with Oliver Ormson, who's currently playing Rob in High Fidelity at the Turbine Theatre in Battersea. If you haven't heard of the Turbine Theatre before, that's because it's new. It was recently founded by the artistic director Paul Taylor Mills, who used to work at the Other Palace, and High Fidelity is the theatre's second production and first musical. Oliver and I had a chat in the auditorium a couple of weeks ago before a matinee, The theatre itself is actually built underneath a railway arch, so from time to time, if you're wondering what that rumbling is, it's a train going overhead. Because the show is set in a record shop and it's all about nostalgia and music and chilled out and that kind of vibe, there are beanbags and sofas at the front of the auditorium seating. So this was probably one of the most comfortable podcast recordings I've ever done, because there we were, just sitting on the sofa in front of the stage. Here's our conversation. You're playing Rob in High Fidelity, a show that opened on Broadway in 2006 and closed after 10 days, one of the shorter runs in Broadway history. But the show that is on stage in London is quite different from the original production. Yeah, that's right. We've hired a woman called Vicky Stone, who's basically brought it back to London. So she's used references and like features that we would understand as a UK audience. And also we've obviously changed some of the lyrics as well and just made the changes, only slight changes to the book where we felt that we could slightly improve on on the character of Rob only because originally in the book it is set in London so that's obviously a good reason why we brought it back to London but he can come across as a quite surly character and rude character and we still wanted to play those elements but also try to make him relatable in some ways um, to the UK audience so it's the same as a Broadway show, but slightly different as well. I didn't know when I saw it on Saturday that in America they'd set it in America. Yes. So I was sitting there going, gosh, for American writers to have all these little British quirks and, yeah. and jokes is quite niche, but obviously that wasn't the case. The music is written by Tom Kitt, who is a Broadway veteran, who, for people who don't know, has written things like Next to Normal, Bring It On, If yeah. Then. This was one of his first scores. Does that excite you to bring a largely unknown score to a British audience? Yes, definitely. And I'm a big fan of Tom Kitt's work, um, especially Next to Normal. And because this is one of these original pieces, you can hear Next to Normal-isms in it. And it's amazing, really exciting for me, a little fanboy. But yeah, the music is so good and it's so catchy. And every song's a bit different, but it keeps you like toast tapping and stuff. And I am so excited because I had no idea about the show really, or the book or the film. So yeah, having listened to the soundtrack, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, really exciting. So when you got the part, did you go off and watch the film, read the book? What did you do? I I read the book. Yeah, I read the book because I was aware at that time we're going to bring it back to London. And obviously the original source of material was the book, which was set in London. And then obviously then they made the film in 2002 or something like that. I can't remember. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Okay. And that they obviously brought it to America and made changes to this, the the book and st- uh, to the original idea. So I went back to the the original source, which is it's a really entertaining book actually. But I do always say about our musical because I've read the book. I'm like this is it, it's sort of in terms of like it's the furthest point from the book if that makes sense. Like especially the original show because it was it goes book, 
then the film, but then they based the musical on the film. So obviously it lost a bit of like the, the elements of the book, but we've sort of shoehorned them back in. And brought it back to its original... Yeah, yeah. yeah, full circle. It's a massive thing for you. Mm. We were just talking about how high it is. Is there a particular number that stands out for you that you really enjoy doing every night? I love to sing Goodbye and Good Luck, which is in the second act with Bruce Springsteen. That's no spoilers there, because I think most people might have seen the film. It's at the point where Rob is sort of contemplating his choices, whether he lets Laura go or not, or... He's just in a sort of limbo in his mind and he imagines Bruce Springsteen as one of his idols comes in and gives him some advice of like what he should do next. I think my favourite was Crying in the Rain. Did you like that? I loved that. I think probably because it's a very Tom Kitt-esque piece. It has real next to normal overtones. Yeah, I love singing that as well. I (laughs) I love singing everything. Crying in the Rain is like a different feeling for me because... Crying in the Rain, I do love singing, but it's like a, a sort of release of all these emotions that he's been holding on to. So that, uh, for people who don't know, this is the point in the show where Rob sort of breaks down and can't really handle uh, the rejection and the, the pain that he's feeling. So he sort of lets go of everything in stark contrast to Goodbye and Good Luck when it's like all like it, like enjoyment. The and, optimism returns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, This piece is very different in a lot of ways to traditional musical theatre because it's so nat- naturalistic. It's, or I, I originally described it as like a play with music, and especially at points, it's very like hard hitting and very like underplayed. But then you got like Ian coming in, who's played by Rob, and it's just sort of this heightened sort of hippie character, and he plays it so wonderfully. And every night the audience are absolutely crying with laughter with his like lines. And obviously, then in the second act we have that um, that number called Conflict Resolution, where Ian comes into my shop, and it's like Rob imagines different ways to get rid of let's just say get rid of Ian or get him out of his shop and he imagines imagines those like scenarios in three different types of music which I think is really clever it's great it's great there are some quite old school references I mean I can't believe we're talking about Woolworths as old school Mm. but it is now I guess yeah is there's a there's a nostalgia to this that some people might interpret that as out of date but actually Mm. the whole piece has got a real nostalgic vibe about it yeah I agree yeah because we wanted to make it how it because it's we we set this piece in the 19 like 1997 so like we did not much um in this like in the script to like cling on to that um but we did put those references in like like Woolworths or like our price and tower which are like stores I can't remember personally but I know people who are older than me would so it does bring it home and it feels like you can relate to if you can relate to the references you can then relate to the characters and I feel like it, yeah, is, there's a warmth behind it, I think, in terms of putting those references in and stuff. So, yeah, it's exciting. Well, it's that moment when there's a character who gets sneered at for buying a CD from Woolworths. Yes. And yet we were all that. We were yeah. all that person as a child. Yeah, because there is a music snobbery, especially in the book. If you read the book, there's it, Rob, especially Rob. Well, all three of them, the people in, who, who work in the shop, Rob, Dick and Barry, they, they do hold their music to high regard, their music taste, should I say. So if someone comes in and buys a Spice Girls CD or a Celine Dion CD or... Or Natalie and Brulia, Brulia God CD, forbid. Yeah, there's going to be reactions to it. But yeah, it's funny. What have you learned from playing Rob so far? What I've really learned to do, because um, I've never been in a fringe venue, really. I've luckily enough always been in, in places where like number one venues or like West End theatres or just big like auditoriums and this place is pretty intimate <laughs> it's uh, 120 140 seats we've got beanbags at the front we've got couches in in in, in the what to call it in the auditorium 
I feel like what I've learned from playing Rob in this space is like how like less is more, especially like, like you can really just tell the audience one emotion by an, a glance or a slight head movement. And it's about, it was about for me, learn, like learning through this piece was, was that really, it was um, that I could just, I could do less. <laughs> do you find it quite scary having to break the fourth wall straight away at the beginning? Yeah, I do. I um, Not so much anymore, but I did originally um, because naturally uh, in rehearsals, we were just, I was just, should I say, I was just directing all my speeches to empty seats and uh, empty beanbags and couches. And so it was all very much, I knew that my show would change dramatically as soon as the show would, would be open. Um, only because there's three big monologues and then, which is directed to the audience. And then there's throughout really, he's talking to the audience and doing little asides and finding those moments where he could get a laugh or he could really uh, put over some emotion to the audience with, with just a look. And it was about um, navigating that. So I, I never did it in rehearsals. I, I, I practiced and I did it to empty chairs, but I never got anything back uh, from empty chairs, obviously. Um, so I found it scary and daunting originally, but now I feel like I'm in a nice little groove now. It's quite Fleabag-esque in that sense, isn't it? Oh my God. Like I said this to the director, Tom. I was like, when I read the script and all that sort of stuff, I was like, this is Fleabag. Like Rob is Fleabag. Yeah. If you if you know Fleabag well, like so one the co- comparisons are just ridiculous. Like one is like a sort of bro- uh, is like a broken person who his friends don't fully understand. It's because something's happened, like a trauma, or like um, in Rob's case, it's like his exes and he's like the ways his past relationships have, are now affecting his current relationship. He's got a failing business, like Fleabag, with a cafe, cafe. She's, um, uh, sister, uh, Fleabag's sister is like the trying to like grab grab her out this sort of depression of this like dark state, and and in our show we got uh, Liz played by Bobby trying to do that with Rob. This the the like sex or uh, uh, intimacies like used just to feel good and not really combat. It's like stupid there and then also the breaking down of the fourth wall and talking to the audience it is literally feedback i'd be very interested to see if she's a nick hornby fan and uh, and has read uh, high fidelity now maybe that is a little a little brain like she's like oh my god this would be great if it was uh, a sort of female based character but the the interesting i suppose the difference between the two is rob is a lot less self-aware in that he has a yeah. problem and he'll try and hide it and bury it by yeah. with his lists yeah and whatnot. We, yeah we wanted to sort of delve into that as well like that that's definitely a trait of rob he, he can't understand his emotions or can't really just doesn't know how to deal with them and we felt like that was quite prominent today especially like in male society and stuff like people who can't really you know it's, it's, it's very well documented that traditional males or whatever like they can't they or tend to bury their feelings so we wanted to really delve into that just in case someone was watching and was like oh i can empathize with his character because that in the end no spoilers but i guess it is he sort of deals with his emotions and and says sorry and, and all the things he should have said years ago was theater a big part of your upbringing yeah I, i'd say so it all started my mum ran an amateur like dramatic society when i was like five and so she she ran it for like 10 years, I think. Or maybe a bit less. Like um, where, where was this geographically? This was, this was uh, in Warrington. This is in okay. northwest of England, northwest, where I'm yeah. originally from. So I like remember just her like having friends around for like script reads or whatever, because they would do pantos every year. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't an amazing, uh, stupidly successful uh, group, but it was like a community group. It was really cute. Um, and I obviously then got roped into it and 
they, they made me sort of do little parts here and there so that happened for like five to ten years and then it sort of dwindled out and then I sort of found it again about when I was about 15 16 so I sort of went away for like since about from, from from the ages probably like 10 till 16 I was I didn't really just distracted by the things yeah football and just other things and finding myself and then yeah I sort of came back and was like oh I actually really enjoy performing and I wouldn't mind doing this for a career and then how did it become your career so then I went to obviously went to sixth form so that was round about the time I decided at sixth form I was like because I, I took like drama and, and performing arts but I also took like sport and English lit and I was like I need to put my mind in one of these uh, camps so that's when I actually decided so it would have been like 17 then so then I did that I, did, I got my A-levels and stuff then I went to uh, a theatre school in Liverpool which is not very heard of um, it's not it's not one of the big like five or whatever you would say in London because I did train in Liverpool a place called Liverpool Theatre School I was there for three years and then I graduated 2012 my first job was Link in Hairspray in Aberystwyth which was very fun my first job and then yeah then I just started auditioning getting on more stuff and yeah I was a slow I wasn't I wasn't straight out of the blocks I you know even though I got link pretty quickly well I, did, I missed my graduation because I was doing link which was pretty cool but I wasn't one of those uh, graduates who just comes out and lands a western job or like comes out and hits a UK tour straight away I last to learn my craft a bit and like audition for everything getting close and getting those and yeah do you think that there are advantages to training somewhere like Liverpool outside of London away from the bubble? Yeah, yeah, massively. But there also are disadvantages. But I, I would say I personally would think the advantage the, you get more advantages training outside of the bubble and outside of London than you, there, there are disadvantages. My advantages, for example, one, the class sizes are so small. Like in my year, I think it was 15. So, like, if you're doing corner exercises or you're doing, like, singing stuff, you, there's no escaping. Like, it, like I, I personally went to Liverpool Theatre School because it was, like, very strong on dance. It's not so much anymore. As in, it's still strong on dance, but they've tried to level out their um, sort of um, priorities. But back then, when I went there, it was very much, like, dance, dance, dance. And I never danced a step in my life, which helped me because then a class of 15 people and I was doing corner exercises, kicks from the corner, never kicked the ever and they were telling me like you can't do that you do make sure do this do this and like, there's no escaping there's no hiding so like that's one of them obviously um, fees and um, living costs are, are, are less so yeah and there's plenty of other things and other reasons um, that is, is good but then also like not being in London like my first time I lived in London was after I graduated so it was all I didn't doubt you know I miss that sort of boat where people you go to arts ed or like whatever lanes or whatever like they sort of around this place but yeah there's there's pros and cons but I would personally say if you find like a, a good place outside of London that you're happy to go to go to it because I always say as well I will finish this point <laughs> training is what you put into it like you can go to the best colleges in the world and if you don't you don't apply yourself you're not going to get anything out of it or you could go to ones that are lesser known and uh, and maybe not in the top five um you know list of top five let's see rob's rubbing off here top five <laughs> list of um uh, theater schools but if you work your ass off you'll you'll reap the benefits and liverpool to its credit has places like the everyman where you mm. can go and see world-class yeah. stuff it's amazing and it's a beautiful city and i love the people and because i think not so much anymore but like say 10 15 years ago it got a lot of bad press and but if like liverpool one and just the city itself is amazing and yeah so if anyone's listening and wants to go to liverpool just for a, a day out or a night out or is interested in train, training there is i'll definitely recommend it massively underrated yeah. i agree yeah 
you have i was looking earlier you have a massive online following yeah when did that happen was that something that you developed before you started working or is that something you just accrued it was yeah it was sort of happened so when i got to mormon my instagram followers and and uh twitter followers started like going up and up and up i think because I just posted quite a lot and I was sort of apparent on there and because you were sw- you were swinging book of I was swing yeah so for two years uh, cover price so you had a lot of spare time during a the lot show. of spare time but it went really big when I I did Anna's family one because of it was quite a, like a, a well known cast but my girlfriend who at, not at the time but is now Carrie Hope Fletcher has got a big following and uh, so it sort of that sort of coincided with that so that's why it sort of blew up really and it's it's crazy i never knew that sort of world i never like social media and stuff i think it's only really in the last like three or four or five years really started hitting off um but yeah it's crazy it's a different it's a different world but I'm, I'm sort of happy to be a part of it does it give you a confidence being in the industry that you have a bit of backing that you have people in your corner yeah even I, if you don't know them y- yeah i guess so like but not i mean We've I've had some people come to watch this show who I know that follow me on Instagram or whatever, and they're so lovely and so seeing their faces in the audience because they've like they become fans, I guess, is really nice um, and lovely. And because I know even if I do a terrible show, in my opinion, they probably still love it, which is nice for my ego. Um, but in terms of like professional, like I, I I don't get any professional advantages. I don't think I don't think I've never gained anything. Um, from my followers or you know in terms of because you do hear stories of like oh he got the job because he's got more followers than me I've never that's never happened to the me reason, the only reason I ask the question is because you hear horror stories of people going for auditions and being told you can't yeah. audition because you have less than 10,000 yeah, followers I've never heard that I, it's never unless it's happened behind closed doors when I've left the room but I'll be honest like no one's ever said that to me I guess it is getting more apparent now people might ask me to do like things because whether it would be to um to retweet their stuff or uh, uh, come on as a guest in their in their concert maybe because maybe if I think you know that's how it works if I retweet their concert then I'm obviously one I'm in it but then two it's like more publicity but other than that like I would not say it's, it's a but I think it's probably going to go down that way and I don't think personally I don't think it's a bad thing um, as long as a person can deliver I think that's the main I don't it doesn't matter if the person's not got Twitter or has got two million subscribers on, on youtube whatever as long as they come out and do a, a good job of the role i think who's to say i don't know I, it's a, it is a massive gray area and i guess some people would disagree and say you should give it all to trained actors but i don't know it's, it's a weird one i think there are implications both ways yeah i mean do you ever do you ever feel pressure or or do you ever struggle having such a public life yeah i, I, I never struggle but I think with me, I I sort of I had my own life and my own sort of thing. Like the social media thing with me just exists like it, it alongside my life. So my life just keeps going, and I I quickly realised I I'm only going to post what I want to post, and I only I'm not going to post because I feel like I should post, and I feel that's when you get into a rabbit hole of of like. I need to post because I need to want to keep my audience happy and I need to keep them updated on my life. And I do post, I guess, pretty often, but it's only what I choose to. And you quickly realize as well, when you do get a following, that people, what you post, people are like, oh yeah, but you said this. And it's like, so you must believe that. Or you you said, like, I posted something when I was in Bath a couple of months ago 
and everyone was like, oh, he's in Bath, he's in Bath. I was like, when I posted those pictures, I was actually at home in London. And no, it's, it's what they see is what they what they. But you have to believe. take that into consideration, of course. What do you mean? In terms As in, of- like, if you're in Bath, are you, are you standing yeah, there thinking, yeah. I can't post this yeah, till yeah, I get yeah, home? Yeah, yeah, you do, you do. But I mean, I'm only, I'm a small fish in a very big pond. Like, my girlfriend Carrie has it 10 times, if not even more, worse than I do. But yeah, so it's a weird, it's a weird thing. In terms of, like I said before, like, I had my life and then, then social media I, I see it first time with Carrie unfortunately I think she she because she, she's grown up with that social media thing it has its benefits but also does have its downsides which I'm sure she'll tell you about one day <laughs> yeah because <laughs> I mean we, we hear every day about the mental health potential problems that social media can bring how do you switch off from it um, from social media are you one of those people who can just scroll through put it away and then and not think about it or is it something where you find yourself picking up your phone and just randomly scrolling through instagram without realizing you're doing it yeah i thinking about it i probably do spend too much time on social media and, and, and those sort of things and looking through um t- tweets and stuff and, and and instagram but i think maybe we're all a bit guilty of doing that but i feel like i i can turn my emotions off from it pretty like i said because i feel like i came into it not came into it late but I've I've had my own sort of online following success. I can sort of I know what tweets mean, as in I know if someone's typed something or posted a picture of them. Um, let's say Instagram, they posted a picture of them on a beach somewhere, and it's lovely and it looks amazing. And naturally, you would be jealous. But I know what it takes to set up that sort of picture. I'm like, who's taking that picture? Because you've you've only been you know posting on your own, and uh, in terms of mental health and stuff, I feel like it doesn't get it doesn't get to me as much as it should. Maybe. Well, that's good that you people. see that that you you go through that thought process rather than oh my god that person's doing that I should be doing that. Blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah, I think that's like, healthier. Because even when I've made my vlogs and stuff um, on my YouTube channel, um, I know what it takes to set up a shot, and I know what it takes. You have to set up a shot, and like, yeah, and then you need to walk in the door and go, "Hey guys, it's me." I'm like. I know what's happened the five minutes before you film that. And I know that's not real. And then all of a sudden it becomes, you can say that's not real, if that makes sense. But if you watch it and not having done those things, like set up a camera shot and run into a shot with full of energy, you, you just think, oh, that's how that person is all the time and how wonderful their life is, how wonderful to be full of so much energy. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't see the, the you don't hear or fe- see the five minutes before of them going, oh God, I've got to do this shot. I'm doing it probably 10 billion times. Or the first take where the sound was wrong. Yeah, exactly. You, I'm sure you know, like doing this. I've watched the telly, so yeah. you know, I've seen it all. Yeah, <laughs> just like, you, it is, it's weird. It's crazy though. You recently appeared in Cats at yeah. Kilworth House in Leicestershire. That was the first production in the UK, certainly, to not have Gillian Lynn's mm. choreography. Yeah. Did you feel under pressure or, or did you as a, as a company feel that there was a, a standard to maintain? Um, yeah, I think probably collectively there was sort of a pressure of we wanted to do a good job. I think Nick Winston did a really good job because it's such a beast. It is such a beast of a show. And he did both. Like he did direction and choreography. Personally, I felt pretty lucky because I went in. Did you get to see it? I didn't. It's, it's all right. I'm, I, I, I don't expect to anyone to house. get to go with because it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's really hard. Um, I felt lucky because Rum Tum Tugger is such a great role and so much fun. And we were given the license to create something from from new, from scratch, in terms of like characterization. And that's sort of like I find actors love doing. 
a lot of actors like it's like you become a kid again because you get to play because when you're in like big musicals and stuff they just tell you where to stand and what how to say that line um so we set our production of cats in london uh below a tube station which you can hear a train probably going above me now just like we are now yeah um uh, yeah under it was set in the 1940s in a bombed out tube station and as soon as i i saw it was set in london because i didn't know it was set in london originally um i set um Rumtum Tugger as a cockney geezer and I thought he's it was like the perfect thing for him like to be like a sort of cockney geezer who's confident and sort of bisexual and just like doesn't is not specific to any gender and just just a loving like amazing cat and that's what I went with and I think it worked um I, people seem to enjoy it because obviously originally it was John Partridge and it was very like rock and roll cat and he was like hey like uh, you know that's sort but of that's very nineteen eighty one in yeah. a way that what you did was very yeah. twenty nineteen. Yeah, so I thought I'd change. I'll change it up a bit and make him a bit of a. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I was really pr- proud of him at the end. It's weird because when you create something, and especially at the beginning when you're trying to start trying stuff out and people are not laughing or not getting it, uh, it's, it's stressful. There were points in the show I was thinking, should I just go back to? Should I just go back to what everyone thinks from Tum Tugger should be, which is just like a rock rock star cat and just play him and roll my hips and be like all eyebrows or should I play him how I feel like I should play him like a cockney cat like a bit of a Jack the Lad a bit of um, yeah and, and and a sexual cat but <laughs> sexual cat sounds really funny but you know you know what I'm trying to say like that sort yeah, of totally. that sort of feel and I went with it and I feel like it worked you mentioned Next to Normal earlier mm. what are the songs that you sing in the kitchen and the shower that are from the parts that you would love to play one day from next to normal specifically or anyone just in general what, what oh, are the, in general what, what are the ones um, that you just find yourself singing without realizing i've always wanted to do uh tony in west side story always want to do that um hopefully that will happen one day who else jamie in uh last five years He's not it's, too, it's a classic yes yes i know it's it sounds a bit cliche but i mean yeah, i feel it's a re- that'd be a really good like sort of challenge um for me i'd like to do fiera one day I've auditioned for it a couple of times, got pretty far, but it's never, it's not, I'm not going to over the line yet, but I feel like it'll happen one day, hopefully. What do you, what do you learn from those auditions when you, when you don't necessarily get the part for the bit, for the big West End shows, Mm. it must be hard not to feel disheartened, but what do you, how do you sort of say, okay, what we learned from it this year was Mm. blah. Yeah. It could either be for me, like what I've learned sometimes, I've not put enough effort in the second time round. That's always a thing that I, I feel like the first time round, I'm like, because it's always the same material. It's always the same stuff. So you you just need like, it. well, that's the thing. You think in your head, you're thinking, I just need two minutes, not two minutes. I need two days just to go over the material again and get familiar with it. And it's probably, that's what I've learned a lot of the times is that I've not equipped myself enough the second time or even the third time round because I've gone, I know this, but maybe it's not knowing it is not good enough it's about being so familiar with it and so comfortable with it that you take it up to the next level not not that you're just reciting lines and you're thinking i know this line like, i know this these scenes i know this song why am i not getting past that next round why do i keep getting to the third round for example i'm not getting past it it's like maybe it's that maybe it's um it's because i'm i'm, I'm i feel like you might feel if you keep going back in for the same stuff you're like well I should be getting recalled now because I know it. It's like, you know, you need to like relearn it and challenge yourself again. I think that's the main thing that I've, I try to do every time. And it's, that's only a recent discovery as well. That's not something I've, I've been sitting on 
like at Pearl of Wisdom for years and years, it's become it's, it it came from uh, auditioning for one of the, like the big musicals in London and not getting it like three times, and like now I'm like yes yeah, because I'm being lazy I guess and being like. I don't know if people, my mates are going out or I go watch a show that night, the night before or or the, where I should be like relearning and challenging myself again. I think that's probably the main thing. That's a really interesting point. Not something anyone's ever said to me before. Really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I good. suppose you just have to let it seep in and bed in, don't you? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, because I, I just, like I said, I can feel, I, I can sense myself doing it like in, in shows. I can still feel that feeling of going, I know these lines because I did them, did them last year. I'm going to put them on the side and I'll probably look at them the day before the audition. And it's like, that's not good enough. I don't feel. Not for me, but everyone's different. Some people can just maybe turn it on and be like, oh, yeah, this is how I nail an audition. But then if I if I put them on the back burner and, and don't actually equip myself, then it just becomes I'm reciting lines in an audition and not really giving it. And like especially when you start auditioning for parts and stuff, because I sort of uh, recently tried to make that transition or I'm starting to make that transition to not like, try cover anymore and stuff. Try just going for parts. The competition's hard. Like if you're going in for one part, there's one part and there's thousands of boys or there's at least they're seeing at least a 200, 100 for that one part. Like... It's different when you're auditioning for a swings and ensemble because there's, say, ten boys in the ensemble, so you got you got a bigger chance to get in. Well, thank you very much for oh, coming in early. I mean, so, we can we can carry on if you want. Uh, okay, what was your favourite thing? I'm asking you a question. Okay, you've seen High Fidelity. I have. And in High Fidelity, there's a running theme, and it's all about top fives. And without giving it away too much. Oh God. Okay. What's your top five things that you enjoyed in the show most about High Fidelity? Okay, the Aretha number. Yes. That Liz sings. Liz, yeah, yeah. Um, of course she goes, yeah. The balloon choreography. Did you like that? I did. Although I did gasp at one point when they went around oh, yeah. the next. I was like, oh God, yeah. health and safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was all fine. Oh, good. Was, yeah, no one was out. injured in the making of this musical. Yeah. We've already talked about the the sequence that's repeated. Yeah, is, conflict resolution that's in that one. two. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was solid. Have I done three? You done three. three. Crying yeah. in the rain, obviously. Crying in the rain is great. Yeah. great number. And oh, it's hard to pick a fifth. It does. It could be. It could be. It has to be a musical number. It could be just like the set. <laughs> I don't know. It could be relatively vague. The fact that it reminded me of going into Woolworths and buying all the steps tapes oh, okay. when I was seven yeah. years old. The nostalgic yeah. memories. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. good. There you go. Awesome. That's my top five. Well, thank you for coming no, to my you. interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are here until the 7th of December. Yes, that's right. At the Turbine Theatre. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. You can see High Fidelity at the Turbine Theatre until the 7th of December. And if you want more information about the show, just go to backstagewith.com. If you're new to the podcast, and even if you're not, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this because it really helps new people find it. And also tap that subscribe button if you haven't already. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram at Backstage With Podcast to find out which stage door we're going through next. See you next time. Bye.